1: It's
2: interesting because as kids, all the life was centered around the ocean and the noise. You know, these islands, maybe they are called the noisies because they were really noisy, and there were just so many. There were hundreds of nesting seabirds, and in the summertime, you get the black-backed gulls nesting literally in their hundreds, and colonies of thousands of white fronted terns and red bill gulls there were shags and of course on land there were the korora you'd see where they were nesting because there'd be great big splashes of white in the rocks but You think, oh there's a penguin in there but that's all gone, there's just a shadow of what was there before and you go out in the boat and you'd sit in the middle of this huge workup, and there'd be just this this abundance and this life, the birds all diving into the water and making little twittery noises and the fish would be jumping and there'd be kawai and kingfish and dolphins. and um, Yeah, and, and it just feels
1: as if that life's been ebbing away. Kia ora. Nau mai, mai, ki te hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Today we continue the story of the Noises Islands, a group of predator-free islands and rock stacks in the inner Hauraki Gulf. Sue Noirreuter spent a lot of her childhood here, snorkelling and fishing in the reefs around the islands and following the tracks through the bush to her favourite spots. She would come here each summer with her parents and with her brother and sister, Rod and Zoe. Today the islands are owned by the Noises Trust, which was formed by the Noirreuter family in 1995, and the islands were gifted to the Trust. Sue's family connection to the islands goes back to 1933, but the story of these islands starts well before that.
2: Gosh, well, there's a really long history, as the middens on the main beach tell us. There have been people visiting and staying here for probably 700 odd years and gathering food, kai, kai moana. We've learned so much from looking into the middens. And there's an awful lot more to learn about the people who came before us.
1: A midden is essentially a kitchen skip area, so it will include the bones of what was being eaten at the time, along with clues about what kind of utensils and methods we used to hunt and cook. At the main beach of the largest island, Ōtata, the encroaching sea is eroding away a clay bank, exposing and washing away the midden. There have been a
2: couple of archaeological excavations in partnership with Naitai Tamaki, who are mana whenua for here. And we've learned from an excavation which predates Rangatoto that there were, so far they've identified 20 fish species that were eaten, obviously, from a really tiny area. There were 20 fish species, and. 20% of the fishbone that was in there they haven't yet identified. So there's going to be a lot more. And there were birds, kuri, kiori. So, yeah, pretty pretty interesting.
1: Excavations took place in March 2020 and February 2021 with help from archaeologists from Tāmaki Pāngahira, Auckland War Memorial Museum. The last rangatoto eruption took place 600 years ago, This eruption formed what is today Rangitoto Island, the youngest volcano in island just off the coast from Auckland City. A layer of ash in the midden site marks this, and the bones from before then tell the story of what was fished and eaten all those hundreds of years ago. So the middle layers hold clues to changes on the islands and in the ocean over time. More recently, Sue and her family have also been documenting changes. As we talked about in the last episode... One of the big things that happened to these islands was that, with the removal of rats, they became predator-free.
2: You don't realise what a massive impact a rat has on an ecosystem until it's not there. And we, not many of us get the chance to see that. So to know about the seed that they ate, so, you know, there were trees that grow now that didn't grow before because they are getting hammered and then they produce fruit and flowers which of course provide food for birds that we didn't have before because they didn't have the food and then the forest grows and grows and is fertilised by the seabirds and so then that provides habitat and a possibility to introduce species that we didn't have before and some are self-introduced and some of them have been possibly reintroduced from what would once have been here, pre-predator. Well, you know, there were a lot of things that were still here, but they were suppressed to low levels, like geckos and stuff, and once the rats had gone, their numbers just exploded, which is fantastic. And the bugs, so many bugs, they exploded too, so it was fantastic to watch that, but of course it was a horrible... um, it was a horrible contrast to what was happening in the ocean.
1: Sue and I are standing on the calm and sheltered north coast of Otata Island in Sandy Bay, looking out to a reef system that blends into the bottom of a rock stack with a tuft of green on top. Beyond that lies the second largest island of the group, Motu Motuhoropapa. This was the Neurochers' playground, and Sue's mum kept diaries, which captured snapshots of the life here, spotted shags nesting, schools of kahawai, and large flocks of petrels.
2: And then Dad's stories when we were growing up, he had stories of abundance that you could only imagine. He talked about catching hapuku. (laughs) Well, good luck with that one from around here. Um, And huge, huge schools of trevally all around the islands. Well, you, you don't see that. And, you know, obviously, we, I still remember the kahawai and the kingfish, but even that's just so vastly reduced. And just the huge schools of bait fish. And you'd be sitting on the beach, and it would be absolutely common and normal to see a kingfish splashing, or two or three kingfish splashing in the bay, and all the piper jumping to get away from them. Now when I snorkel, it's a relief to find things. But now and then you think, oh, what happened to the John Doreys? And it's so long since I've seen one, it scares me because I sometimes forget that something was there. And you, you go and suddenly you'll get this flash of memory that, oh my goodness, that's right, you used to see this here or this there. And if I'm in danger of forgetting then how on earth do you pass that knowledge on to the generations that are younger than I am who have never seen it in the first place? And so how do we know how to aspire to
1: something more? These observations of loss are not specific to the Neuroter family or the Noises Islands area. In 2000, the government established the Hauraki Gulf Marine Park, Ko Te Patakakai the goal was to protect the natural and historic features of the gulf and to sustain the life-supporting capacity of the soil, air, water and ecosystems of the gulf. The boundary line north of Auckland starts on land just south of Mangafai Heads and then loops high out to sea around the Mokohinao Islands, extends west to encompass Great Barrier Island and the waters and islands around the Coromandel Peninsula before touching back to land at Waihi Beach on the west side of the base of the Coromandel. The legislation enacted in 2000 required local council and government departments to consider the objectives of the park when making planning or fisheries decisions. But, with the exception of five tiny marine reserves in the area, commercial and recreational fishing continues and increasing development on land heightens the burden of sedimentation and pollution. The legislation also required the establishment of the Hauraki Gulf Forum, charged with administering the park and tasked with preparing reports every three years. The State of the Gulf 2020 report says 22% of all the Gulf's seabirds are threatened, compared to 4% 20 years ago. Taiko, or black petrels, are dying at an unsustainable rate because of commercial fishing. kora or crayfish, are now functionally extinct. And mass mortalities of fish and shellfish have become common. But this wasn't news to many people, and the search for solutions had already begun. Years before,
2: we'd been talking to Auckland Council and DOC about needing to protect the sea, and then we were contacted by them in late 2012, saying there's going to be a process in recognition of the fact the losses that you're talking about that you're seeing are happening all over the Hauraki Gulf, and it's called sea change, and that was a process that invited stakeholders and Mana Whenua to be part of finding solutions for restoration of the Hauraki Gulf, so waited in their boots and all. <laughs> and, um, and that was where we started meeting all these amazing people.
1: Sea Change released a call to action in 2017. In 2019, the Noises Trust formed a partnership with Tāmaki Paingahira, Auckland War Memorial Museum, and Waipapa Tāumata the University of Auckland to investigate marine restoration for the noises. The first step was to document what was there.
2: We were able to get some marine surveys done to establish that baseline information. And I'll always remember being on the boat with the guys and I'd been snorkelling and their first dive, I was holding my breath because I I was thinking, please, please, let them have found some cool stuff because otherwise... (laughs) And they came up and they said, oh, my God, the sub subtitle muscles, that's extraordinary. You know? <laughs> and I thought, phew. <laughs> but um, so we've had two lots of marine surveys and, a, and intertidal surveys and all sorts of things. So the islands and what's around the islands have gone from being, well, especially the marine environments, gone from being... Understudied to probably one of the more studied places in the Hauraki Gulf now.
1: The Noises Islands straddle the boundary between inner and outer Hauraki Gulf. And so around these rock stacks and reefs, you get mixing of two different types of water, which researchers suspect drives biodiversity. The surveys showed a wide range of habitats, including seaweed forests, mussel beds, soft sediment bivalve beds and shallow sponge gardens. But the surveys also revealed telltale signs of the pressures of overfishing. kina barrens.
2: So, if you take away the, the big residential snapper that like reefs and you take away the coda, then the kina just do what they, they're opportunists. <laughs> they grow and they multiply, which is, of course, what they've done. And then they eat all the kelp. And you can watch this in action. And once that kelp's gone, all the biodiversity that was in that kelp, all the little treasures that you used to love to find, they're all gone as well. And so you end up with these huge bare areas. And then, of course, if you had a big bare area on land and you left it, the first thing to colonise it would be a weed. My background is in landscaping and revegetation planting on land. And I think there's so many parallels in the marine environment, you know, with your forest or your lack of forest, and that forest holds the biodiversity. And if you protect those really richly biodiverse areas, but like your rainforests, then all of those things thrive within them and they reach a critical mass and they spill out into other areas.
1: Kennebarns, unfortunately, are becoming more and more of an issue all around the Haraki Gulf and beyond... With researchers from the University of Auckland, the Noises Trust decided to do a trial on two hectares of reef just around the corner from where we're standing at Sandy Bay.
2: It was a barren. I mean, you could hardly find kelp in there. They removed 140,000 skinny little kinna that were useless for anything apart from eating every last skerrick of algae off the rocks. And that's less than two years ago. And last summer I couldn't wait to snorkel in here in November and I I actually cried into my face mask because the bottom was just waving at me. And I thought, oh my goodness, there's all this kelp that's come back. And see, not just, not just eclonia, but all sorts of things. And I snorkeled around there yesterday and it's just, it's a completely different world. It's just completely transformed it. Those what were once just barren, great big white barren rocks with nothing. I mean, they'd even chewed right down into the rock. Now there's just all manner of marine algae and kelps, and there's fish all in amongst them. And um, I mean, I saw blue cod in there the other day. And that's something I remember from my childhood seeing and catching, but, and
1: you do see them, but it's wonderful to see them coming back. The return of kelp doesn't just help fish though. It's a vital part of that land-sea interconnection.
2: When it gets ripped off the rocks in a storm, You know, often it floats on the surface so when you get those big storm surges and waves it damps down the impact of the waves on the foreshore and then when it gets washed onto the shore it actually physically builds the height of the beach up and it's like a great big sponge so if the waves hit that it it disperses that wave action better than if you're just hitting bare rock and of course it doesn't stop there because there's all the critters that live in the kelp above the high tide mark including you know your reptiles and your insects and in the winter especially you see the fantails coming down to pick mm. through the kelp and um, obviously the oyster catches profit from it and what we used to see on a really calm day with a really high tide is you get all the little bait fish that would come right 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 up to the beach so that they could profit from that kelp that was then awash again from those high tides that that contained all those little critters. So, yeah, it's this kind of wonderful system.
1: In looking at all these critters are a bunch of entomologists from Tamaki pangahira They're down on the main beach, not far from where the midden site is, busy emptying bright plastic-coloured bowls into plastic bags. They're called pan traps, says Melissa Kirk.
0: It's basically a coloured dish. This one happens to be a yellow pan trap. So it's a little yellow bowl and to catch flying insects you put in a little bit of wetting agent and water. The wetting agent just makes it so it breaks the surface tension and then once they get in there they sink and drown. Um, yellow is the most commonly used. It's best at attracting Hymenoptera, so wasps and bees, and also Diptera, so flies. And it's thought that they're attracted to it because it mimics, like, coloration of flowers and stuff. But depending on what color you go for, so you can have, like, white pan traps, blue, red, they'll attract different flying insects. And when did you put this pan trap out? We put it out yesterday. (laughs) Ideally, you put them out for about two days, but they are quite weather-dependent, so two factors if it rains you don't want them to overflow and then you lose your samples and also in colder rainy weather flying insects are less likely to be flying around and <laughs> yeah. how many have you put out across the island we've put out about 100 yeah just under 100 actually okay. but yeah and in different locations? Yes, so we went for different habitat types, yeah. So we've done some which are like the forest edge, so the really high uh, super littoral into the forest edge. And then we've got some in the like middle of the forest at the peak, but you have to have it on the ground that's quite flat. Otherwise, <laughs> you're not going to be getting your water in there. <laughs>
1: And for this you're looking for the different species that you find, so you'll be identifying mm-hmm. what you capture?
0: Yeah, so the yellow ones are the ones that collect the most diverse uh, types normally, so that's why we yellow is kind of the standard. And yeah, we'll be looking at what species of Hymenoptera and Diptera and anything
1: else it can collect a few other insects as well. As we discussed in the last episode, researchers from the museum are surveying the ecology of the islands. Not just once or twice. They have a plan in place to do it for a decade so that they can track changes. The insects are poured into a plastic bag for now. Melissa and her colleagues Daryl Jeffries and Kiza D'Souza have a busy day heading around the island to collect all the dishes. We're staying at the Neuroyters family batch not far from the main beach and one of the rooms has been set up for sorting through their finds later.
0: Then when we get back, we're going to be basically draining the wetting agent water mixture from them, rinsing them out with some water, and then they'll go into
1: ethanol. And once they're in ethanol, they're preserved, you bring them back to the museum, and that's when you go about identifying them? Yes, yes,
0: correct. That's when we'll go through and ID all the things we have collected from our
1: traps. Which presumably be hundreds of things. Yes.
0: (laughs) Hence why, yeah, entomology takes a while. Like, that's the thing as well. Like, depending on what traps, if you truly want to get every type of order, you have to do multiple types of traps. So, this is good for Hymenoptera and Diptera, but you can also do, there's so many other types of traps. So, we did pitfalling. So, that's good for Coleoptera, so beetles. But you can also do light trapping for Lepidoptera, particularly moths. And like, yeah, night collecting, Like, you just need to do a vast amount of different types of trapping to kind of sample the biodiversity of insects. Yeah.
1: And so the overall goal is to get a picture of that biodiversity. So months yes. down the line, you'll be yes. able to come out and say, this is the, the range of biodiversity in terms of insects that you find on the noises. Yeah.
0: All we can really say is this is present here. Yeah. So ideally for... Entomology. You would want to do many years of this type of trapping, different types of traps, to get a picture of what's there, and then from then onwards you can kind of monitor after that. But even then, like um, yeah, depending on the types of traps, how left, how long you've left them out for, you'll get a difference in species and abundances of different species.
1: The plan is that this monitoring continues long term. How would you expect the biodiversity of insects to shift if there's marine protection in place?
0: So there's different theories. Obviously with increased like, uh, seabird life, a lot of them come to shore to nest and breed. And so their uh, droppings will change the soil composition, like the nitrogen amounts and stuff like that, which can influence the insects. But also those, generally, when you put things in like that, there is a cascading effect across the ecosystem.
1: A short walk from the main beach, up over the gravel rocks and down to a rocky shore, there's still more surveying happening.
3: I'm looking at um, a bit of intertidal work, just collecting a few species that we didn't cite or collect last year during our first trip.
1: Severine Hanam is a collection manager for natural sciences at the museum. She looks after marine geology and paleontology collections. This morning, she's wandering around the exposed low tide shoreline on a treasure hunt.
3: I'll be collecting a few chitons. We've just had a request from a novice scientist to collect a few chiton species throughout New Zealand. So I've already got three new species this morning, which is quite good. So what's a chiton? So a chiton is like, um, it's a little invertebrate. It it's kind of almost looks like a sea slug, or a very boring sea slug. But it's got some really cool plates on top of it, kind of like an armour. And they're really um, they're really cryptic. They can be quite hard to see on
1: the rocks. If you were making a sea slug-like creature scale, from zero to fabulous, well, the chiton would surely be close to the bottom. But at the other end... So we are looking at a jewel nudibranch. We just found this little guy
3: um, crawling around the... Rocky, um, more like bouldery bottom just there, and I thought I'd get it out of the water. We've luckily found a leftover, I think, um, takeaway container. So um, we we'll just put the nudibranch in there so we can look at it closely and see its magnificent colours. And yeah, just have it's a closer look,
1: really. Pretty resplendent. Mm. It's got a lot of stuff going on. And the frilly bits at the back, you were saying, are the gills?
3: Yes, the frilly bits are the gills, and um, the human eye is beautifully attracted to it because of its um, how interesting, colourful, and even, um, I don't know, as you can see, the the skin is kind of like three-dimensional, it's not nice and smooth, it's kind of like an octopus when they um, decide to flare up and become more um, algae-looking like. But don't be fooled, they're very toxic, So, <laughs> I mean they're supposed to be quite toxic. So they're just um, basically warning other marine life, don't eat me because I'm going to make you pretty sick. <laughs> so These kind go. of
1: oranges and browns and mm, different patterns. Oh, yeah, electric beautiful. blue.
3: And so. what are they? Um, so it's another kind of slug, but this time it's not, it's not a chiton. It's, a, it's also a marine invertebrate but um, they're called nudibranch, so it's a a marine nudibranch.
1: And there's lots of different kinds, right?
3: There's lots and lots of different kinds. This is quite a nice big one. Um, We have lots of different species of nudibranch in New Zealand and even more um, throughout the world. Um, They can be quite hard hard to identify. This one, yes, uh, we can't miss it, but um, a lot of the smaller ones, generally we need to do some DNA testing on them, so taking a little clip of the foot and then preserving the rest of the specimen for marine collection is usually a good idea. So you have the DNA work and you also have the whole specimen. The problem with um, preserving specimens, especially nudibranchs, is once they go into um, formalin and then ethanol, they lose all the colour. They can uh, quickly lose their shape if they just go all, um, if they shrivel on themselves. So having um, a little bit of DNA for Analysis can be really handy too, an expensive way, but a for sure way of telling what um, species an Lindy is.
1: But for this little guy today?
3: This one is going back in the water to keep on crawling on the stones. We do not need him.
1: He's happily going
3: to go back for his little hawk.
1: Not the case for some clingfish that Severin found this morning. Safely squirreled away, they will soon be on their way to the museum.
3: So that's a very, very cool little fish that has, um, like, just like the remora fish in the tropics, but just a much smaller version. They've got a little um, sucker just under their head there, and they just stay stuck under rocks. And as you turn over a rock, often you see a little fish like that just clinging on, clingfish. Here we go, they're really cute little fish. And same, we've got a scientist working on them. So, And we also don't have any records of those little fish here for the noises. So I thought getting a couple to add them to the collection could be quite good.
1: As with all collection managers, Severine is always thinking about what's needed to fill any knowledge gaps. Now there's a record of clinkfish here, at this time, in this place.
3: Last trip already, we did document quite a large amount of species. And this year, it's basically just topping up what we haven't seen last year, just adding them to the species list. So, yeah, present, absence, what's here? It'll be a really good um, baseline um, data set if the noises ever become a marine reserve or if the harvesting of the scallops starts again. It'll be really good to see there's a significant decline or significant increase of species in the area.
1: If, if, if. So what's the state of play right now? Well, in response to the sea change call to action, the government released the Revitalising the Gulf Strategy in June 2021. There are a lot of different actions outlined in this document aimed at helping the state of the Gulf, and amongst them, a list of proposed new areas for marine protection. In September 2022, the government released a consultation document and sought public feedback on a suite of marine protection proposals. And this included the Noises proposal for an area of about 60 kilometers squared around the islands. The Revitalizing the Gulf strategy aims to have legislation in place for these new marine protection areas by 2024. And later is ready.
2: We're fishers as well, and it's been a huge part of our life here being able to go down and get a fish to put on the table, or some scallops, or some mussels, and There's joy in that. I get that, and I get the joy that comes from fishing, but we just need to aspire to so much more. I know what I used to see as a kid, and you want the next generations to be able to see that regeneration because the way the world's going, we have so few places where people can experience that joy of regeneration or have hope or or just to be able to use your imagination to think what would actually happen if you protected an area which was almost ten times bigger than the next biggest protected area and you were protecting interconnecting reefs under the water and soft sediments and all these habitats and all these things down there, would it come back? And, you know, even if it doesn't come back as well as you would hope it would, well, then at least what you've done is you've eliminated that pressure of extraction. And you think, okay, that wasn't it. So you turn your attention to sedimentation or nutrients or urban development, um, climate change, warming temperatures. All of those things are having an impact, there's no doubt. But that's not a reason to say, oh, but that's... Stopping fishing isn't going to fix the problem. That's not a reason to not do it and to not make a start.
1: Thanks to Suno Reuter of the Noises Trust. And to Melissa Kirk, Daryl Jeffries, Kiza D'Souza, and Severine Hanam of Tamaki Hira, Auckland War Memorial Museum. This episode was produced by me, Clerk and Cannon, with help from Liz Garten, Justin Gregory, and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. The show's website is at rnz.co.nz slash There'll be photos and links related to the story up there if you want to learn more. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. Tēnā i whakaronga Thanks for listening. Kō Klerken I'm Klerken Cannon. Have a great week. Kia pai, wiki.